I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary, Wham! Wham was a brotherhood. It was playful. The human, unpredictable mess. All of it was pop. And Wham! was never going to grow up. Today, we're talking to producer Simon Halfen. In 1982, best friends and teenagers George Michael and Andrew Ridgely set out to conquer the world as Wham. But by 1986, it was over. Now, for the very first time, told in their own words, it's the amazing story of how in four years, Wham! dominated the charts around the world with classic pop songs. With unprecedented access to both George and Andrew's personal archive, including never-before-seen footage, alongside rare, candid, and previously unheard interviews, the Netflix documentary Wham! charts their incredible journey from school friends to superstars. In reality, the turning point with Wham! was nothing to do with Wham! The turning point with Wham! was me, as I suddenly thought, oh my God, I'm a massive star and I'm gay. And I'm joined now by producer Simon Halfen. Simon, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Oh, well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell me about your relationship with Wham, because from my understanding, it's not enough to say you're just a producer of this documentary, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I go back with those guys pretty much from the beginning. I met them very early on through a DJ friend of mine, a guy called Gary Crowley, who was the DJ that actually gave them their first record, the very first spin on Capital Radio here in the UK. And Gary went on to be the DJ and the opening act, if you like, on their first UK tour. So I didn't get to know them that well that early, but during the course of Wham, which is, you know, it was like kind of four short years, I got to know George pretty well in the second half of that time, just through mutual friends and my background is designing record sleeves and it was kind of a fairly small community, the kind of London crowd of people that would go out to clubs and just kind of hang out. And so every now and again, you just bump into these guys and it was, it was a small world. So as a diehard Wham! fan since middle school, I am very fascinated by the origin story of this band. And I think a lot of more casual fans might be surprised to hear that it was Andrew Ridgely who was like the leader, the spark, the real ham of the duo. And George Michael, of course, that's his stage name, was actually a really insecure kid when they first met. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, that's what's, you know, one of the many interesting things I think about the film. And, you know, I knew these guys from the get-go and got to know them both very well over the years. But even for me, there were some eye-openers here and things that I didn't realize. And one of those things was how instrumental Andrew was as a driving force in those early days and in giving George the confidence to actually be in a group. George says as much in the film. Who's going to look after the new boy? Andrew put up his hand. I genuinely believe that there's something predestined about it. 
I mean, the path might have been totally different had I sat down next to someone else that day. So, of course, George Michael's real name is Yorius Peniotu. Do you think that the reason why Andrew took him under his wing was because, you know, he was also the son of immigrants? Because, like, it just seems to me like their meeting was, like, so without fail, like destined to be. I mean, they say that in the documentary, like without Andrew, there would be no George. I'm not sure if that's true because George was such a star. I think everyone needs their platform, don't they? Everyone needs their their sort of launch pad. And I think, you know, Andrew certainly gave that to George. But that's an interesting question. They were both uh, sons of immigrants. That could well be the case. You know, Andrew sort of jokingly said to me, he said, you know, the reason he put his hand up is because no one else did. (laughs) <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so it could well well have been that. But I think Andrew had mentioned also that he, he kind of just wanted the opportunity to have a new kid that he could perhaps boss around. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe everybody else was sick of him by that point, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the central story of this documentary, uh, besides the story of Wham!, which we will talk about, is this incredible friendship and partnership yeah. between George, who Andrew calls Yogg, uh, for much of his life. They did meet his kids. They became essential partners. They eventually part ways musically. Their relationship seems wonderful. Is that legit how wonderful it just comes across in this film? To me, and as I said, I knew those guys well. It was absolutely legit. They had such a short kind of lifespan, you know, left school in 1982 and played their final gig at Wembley Stadium in 1986, having conquered the world in between. And George says as much in the film, he says... It was just absolutely magical, playing out your fantasies. It was just a dream. And with your best mate, you know... Wham! were kind of a singles, hit singles machine. So I don't think either of them had any idea that was going to happen. And I think as a consequence of that, they just kind of... They rode that crest of a wave and just enjoyed it and savoured it. Yeah. And obviously there are the pitfalls to that. You know, the film highlights George's own dilemmas and issues and how his ego kind of, in some cases or in some way, was stronger than his actual desire to be happy. You know, the need for success was greater than the need for happiness. And that was obviously a cost of that success. Did their relationship endure after the band broke up as a musical partnership? Yeah, most definitely. I mean, they didn't see each other anywhere near as much because when you're in each other's pockets at school, you see each other every day. And when they're in the band, they see each other every day. They obviously, just by default, had to go their separate ways, but they were still very, very close. You know, I saw them on many occasions together for lunches and dinners and in different countries. And you could still see that they had that same ability to make each other laugh. Yeah. And that was the thing that was kind of infectious and and contagious about them. They were just funny guys that, you know, would take the piss out of each other in a very joyful way. Yeah. You know, it's it's really hard not to think of like Lennon and McCartney when you see these two met in high school, you know, started a rough and tumble band before they had a good band, Um, you know, had this very, very close friendship and partnership. But these guys ended it when they believed it was supposed to end. And then they maintain a friendship. Yeah. It was so healthy. I think that's absolutely a unique situation because I can't think of any other. I mean, I've worked with other bands over the years and got to know other bands. You know, I knew Paul Weller when he split the jam up and then works with Noel and Liam uh, in Oasis. And Oh, those guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you know, Wham! were the, the only band that I can think of that split at their height and kind of walked away with a handshake, a hug and a kiss. And there was no acrimony. There was no ill feeling. 
And going back to kind of the Oasis thing, I, I did a documentary, I produced a documentary called Supersonic, which was their journey from claiming benefits to two and a half years later, they play in Nebworth, which is a massive festival. And they had 2.3 million applications for tickets. That idea was, Noel came to me because I'd worked with them designing the record series. He came to me wanting to do something, you know, almost like a small TV documentary. And I said, no, no, this is a bigger story and, you know, a bigger film. And it feels like it needs to be like a feature. And which was exactly the same conversation that I had when Andrew came to me five years ago. We had lunch and it was just his, his um, autobiography was about to come out a few months later. He said, I'd like to do a little TV something to promote my book. And my response to him was, I said, listen, let's do this properly. Let's do this right. Spend some time on it and make it into a kind of a feature length documentary. Because again, it's that same kind of phenomenon. Four years from schoolboy to superstar. Well, I do want to talk about how you did it, because the craft of it is incredible. So pretty much the only voices we hear in this are those of Andrew Ridgely and George Michael cut together from various interviews. Where did that tape come from? Well, we had a, a lot of post-wham audio of George from various interviews, and there were a couple of really key ones. One was an English broadcaster called Mark Goodyear. Mark had interviewed George for a tour book. So I called Mark. I said, you know, would it be possible to take a, or have a listen to the rough, uncut interview that you did? And he said, absolutely. So he sent them across. And, and, it, was, and it was quite an amazing moment, actually, because I sat there and it was three hours long. And it was actually quite emotional because it reminded me of going out for lunches with George, where he would tell these fabulous stories and would be self-deprecating and he'd kind of laugh at himself and let you laugh at him or he'd laugh at you. And it was really, you know, it was really touching. But more, more important than that, it almost was as if we'd given him a list of questions the day before. And these were the answers to the questions you know, about his childhood, about meeting Andrew, about school, about the first record, the first tour, playing at the final, the, you know, splitting up and the, his relationship with Andrew. His perfectionism, his ego. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. It's so reflective and deep. And like, it is like you're asking him now as a mature man how he felt back then. It, it really struck me that way. Exactly. Yeah. And the thing, the thing that is striking about George uh, above and beyond everything else is his kind of candor and his honesty. He was always a straight shooter and just told it like it was and told it as he felt. And the, this interview with Mark Goodyear, never at any point in time did it feel like an interview. It just felt like a conversation. He'd go off at tangents about this, that and the other. And just as, as you as you do in, in, in a conversation. And so I remember ringing my um, producing partner, John Batsek, after listening to it. I said, John, we've got our movie because this was the goal that we were kind of hoping existed. And then there was so much archive footage that hadn't been seen. It was like finding many needles in many haystacks, but we kind of got there in the end. So um, it took a long time to do it all, but we just had a really great team, a great archive producer, a guy called Alex Black, fantastic editor, and Gregor Leon, obviously Chris Smith, fantastic director, and his kind of body of work speaks for itself. But my first call that I made when after having that lunch with Andrew was to call John Batsek, who I hadn't worked with before, but I loved his body of work. So I dropped him an email, like cold emailed him saying, listen, you know, wham, what is, how does that sit with you? <laughs> and he said, I'm in. Yeah. And then 
the second meeting I had was with you guys at Netflix. And I said to both of them, I said, this is a celebration. This is not going to be, oh, there's a dark side or a steamy underbelly or whatever it is. This is genuinely a celebration, an honest account. It's not that we're keeping that stuff out. It's just isn't none of that stuff's there. Yes, that's really what strikes me, especially watching the archival footage. Yeah. The concert footage is incredible. Anybody who's seen this documentary, it is like watching a concert film in many, many ways. You have extended access to the music, obviously, and extended yeah. access to this incredible concert and behind-the-scenes footage. That's, that's from all the archive stuff you're talking about that you're able to pull together. Exactly right, yeah. It took a while, lots of things. We knew they existed, but couldn't find them. And then just literally at the last minute, something would turn up, you know, and be like, oh my God, there it is, finally. There was one bit that was really eluding, one concert, which was everyone remembered being filmed, which was <laughs> the last concert on the first tour. George's estate didn't have it. Andrew didn't know where it was. Sony Music didn't know where it was. The manager from way back when, Simon Napier-Bell, remembered it being a shop, but didn't know where it was. And literally, just as we were about to picture lock, Gary Crowley, who I mentioned, the DJ on the first tour, he'd gone out for a coffee with a guy who, just by coincidence, was on the first tour. But also, he played bass on the demos that you hear for the first time in this film as well, the Careless Whisper demo and the Wham Rap demo. Gary said, oh, do you remember it being filmed? And he says, do I remember it? I've got a VHS copy of it. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So literally, boom, we got that, which was amazing because it was actually edited. But it never saw the light of day because I think once it was recorded, it kind of sat in a cupboard somewhere and it was never broadcast. It was never shown. So there are lots of things like that in the film that haven't seen the light of day either ever or for 40 odd years. I will say that footage contains one of my favorite shots in the whole film. Because there's all this talk about how insecure and shy George is. I mean, he says that himself again and again and again. I was really shy. So to justify this kind of showy character that was the complete antithesis of who I was growing up. And said, that's the thing I put on. And it's so hard to imagine and so hard to see because... He's very, very handsome, great outgoing performer. Like from the beginning, he is clearly like he draws the eye. Yeah. But there's this incredible shot at that concert footage where you see him about to go on stage and he looks like a completely different person. And he's just yeah. standing there very reserved. And then the minute he walks on stage, he is explosive George Michael. And yeah. it is the most unbelievable shot, I think, in the film. Yeah, no, it, I, I agree. It's, 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 a, it's a real moment, that because he says himself, he, you know, he kind of created this persona. And that was the one that he presented. And that was the persona that you saw on stage. And yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating to hear that insight from himself, because you know, I knew him very well over the years and, you know, he was a very close and dear friend and much missed friend. And just some of the stuff that I was hearing in that film, you know, I'd say to Chris Smith, the director, I said, Christ, if I didn't know that, then there's a good chance most of the people watching the film won't have known that either because it was kind of many layers deep, if you like. So, um, yeah, we were very, very lucky. 
So what kind of gift is it when you're putting together a film like this, when one of your subject, Andrew Ridgely's mother, has dozens of scrapbooks documenting every single second of their whole career, every clipping, every chart position? How much research is that that she actually did for you guys (laughs) over this four-year period? Well, it's so much more than that. Visuals. (laughs) Yeah, fan drawings, plane tickets, itineraries. It was fantastic. I mean, I've got to admit, when Andrew said, oh, I've got my mum's scrapbooks, I sort of, in my mind's head, think, oh, he's going to have two or three scrapbooks. <laughs> you know, bits and pieces. You, you kind of don't even think too much about it. And then there's 50 or more of them. And you just think, oh, my God, this is unbelievable. So they almost became the kind of third lead in the movie because it's such a great way of telling the story. But it also, as you, you know, the film is a very personal story because it is, as you said, just George's voice and Andrew's voice throughout to have this other element, which is Andrew's mum having provided these fantastic scrapbooks. It's not like it came from a, a record company or a press agency or a clippings agency. These are all lovingly done from the get-go by Andrew's mum, and it just really added another level to the filmmaking, and we were really lucky and thrilled to have those. So Wham! becomes successful when George and Andrew are incredibly young. You know, even then, though, when a lot of 18, 19, 20-year-olds might be obsessed with just, you know, the high of being famous, there's this incredible attention to detail by both of them of the actual production of their tours, their image, their look, their music, like just the aesthetic of of the whole thing. And it's you hear the story over and over and over again where young artists have no control over that or, like, they just don't care. Can you just talk about the fact that they locked in their look so early and they had so much control over it? I'm looking at Wham! at the very beginning and I'm like, that's George Michael's look like forever. Yeah, I mean, today's world is very different or the last two, three decades is very different. This is still a time where there was no kind of media handbook and how an artist should present themselves or guidelines on how to do interviews. These guys just did their own thing. You know, as Andrew says when they did their first Top of the Pops, back then they were kind of uh, rotating two outfits between them. It was a costume budget until they went on tour and then it was the sports way, you know, the feeler <laughs> jackets and the shorts. and The shuttlecock. <laughs> yeah, the shuttlecock, exactly. So in those days, you just bands were kind of left to their own devices, either for good or for bad. And um, they weren't being managed at that point either. It was only uh, at the end of the first tour when Simon Napier-Bell came in and kind of took control of things, not taking control of them, but they had a proper manager who was running the show for them a little bit. So you mentioned Top of the Pops. I have to ask you this question because I know a lot of younger people are going to be watching this documentary. Can you just describe Top of the Pops for people who are unfamiliar with it? Well, Top of the Pops, as someone that would watch it every week, it it was the music TV show. It was on BBC One, 7.30 on a Thursday night. And that would be the talking point at school the next day. You'd be saying, oh, did you see so-and-so on Top of the Pops? Did you see David Bowie on Top of the Pops? Did you see this one? Did you see that one? Three videos pre-MTV. So it was genuinely the only way you got to see your favorite artists, other than if you got the chance to see them live, or you saw a grainy picture of them in the music press. So it was an incredibly important show that started in the 60s, and everyone from the Beatles to Elton to the Stones to David Bowie to all, all stops in between appeared on that show. And it was the 
show where you were seen. And it was the kind of show you had to be on to have a hit. So one thing that's incredible to me is that no one seems to, I mean, maybe they noticed this and talked about it, but we don't really see it in the film. No one is talking about George Michael's voice and how truly great his singing voice is. I and mean, we even hear like his dad at one point say like, And I said, you couldn't sing to save your life anyway. What are you talking about? Like, there's no auto-tune in the early 80s. No. And even on the early demos, he has a great singing voice. Like, did people pay attention to that? Were they paying attention to his voice? Because he talks about himself as a producer. He obviously felt very strongly about being a songwriter. They had all his attention to detail about their look and image. But his voice is incredible. Yeah, and you know what? I think you're absolutely right. I, th- I don't think they did immediately. And that kind of comes across in the film as well where George kind of gets that sort of disappointment that they're not being taken seriously. You know, they were getting a lot of attention in the kind of uh, pinup magazines because they'd become these pop star pinups. So George found that a little uncomfortable because he felt that he was more than that. But I think it wasn't until later when people kind of started to listen clearly and just be able to listen to his voice. I mean, some years later, George, you know, after the Faith album, album cover that I worked on with George was Listen Without Prejudice. And that was really... Iconic, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. No, I love that. <laughs> but the, the point being that he just wanted the people to listen to the songs. That's why there was no photo of him on the cover. He didn't do pop videos for it because he just wanted his voice to be heard. Hmm. And I think that deed was probably sown way, way back from the Wham! period where he was kind of thrust into being a pinup and... The reviews were very negative about these guys, you know, banal. Thick. Thick, yeah. And, and, and that was one thing about both George and Andrew is they're incredibly bright. Yes. Incredibly. You can see, in the, even when they're interviewed at the age of 19, they're incredibly eloquent and focused and driven. The press caught up eventually, I think, but it took them a while. So there's this incredible... And this, again, really is a testament to the quality of that interview that you were able to source of George Michael, where he tells the story about being in Ibiza, filming the video for Club Tropicana and coming out to Andrew and Shirley. And they basically talk him out of telling his father, Jack, that he's gay. And he then says, But the point being, I really, really asked the wrong people. I mean, you know, we were 19, 20 years old. Our perspective was a little narrower. Can you talk a little bit about that long-term impact of not coming out? Because he then had to live this life as a faux pinup. Yeah. Both George and Andrew say that in the film when he says, oh, they were the wrong people to ask. I mean, the implication is they're the wrong people to ask because they're kids. And yes, <laughs> basically it's like, oh, don't do that. Don't tell your dad. It wasn't for any other implication. Don't get your dad upset. So it's got a real charm to it in the sense that certain things, you know, if you're a kid and you're smoking a cigarette or something, don't tell you that, you know, it's that thing you don't want them to find out something of that nature. And I think, as George says, you know, he, he realised that was a missed opportunity. And, you know, it was a different time, the 80s, I think, in the way people perceived anyone that said they were gay. I remember George saying that one of his other concerns about telling his mum that he was gay was... He didn't want her to be worried about AIDS because mm. it was, you know, everywhere you looked in the papers, it was like the gay man's play. Mm. It didn't make for happy reading and it was an awful time for the gay community. And, and maybe there was some sort of comfort and security in being closeted, yeah, knowing you wouldn't have to expose his mum to that because he was ever so close with his mum. 
we see all these news clips where they're being asked about sex and Andrew has all these, you know, news tabloid news stories about being really promiscuous and being a party guy. Yeah. Was that image that he was sort of very happily, it seems, or like, OK, with being out there? Was he sort of playing cover a little bit for George or was that just a, a side effect of that? I think that was definitely a side effect of that. I don't think that was intentional. I don't think he was trying to protect George by being... Randy Andy, I think it, you know Andrew was out and about carousing quite a bit, so it was quite easy to focus on that. Mm. And George kind of was left to get on and do his own thing, really, in a more discreet fashion, perhaps. Yeah. So the documentary also touches on something really interesting, and that's this brief tension they had over songwriting when Andrew acknowledges that George's talent has surpassed him, and George feels that songwriting has become very important to him. Yeah. And we hear this conversation happens once. I think that's George's point of view. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. George really felt that he had that calling. That was his thing was songwriting. George felt supremely confident in being able to deliver the promise of Wham's full potential yeah. by these songs and not having to sit there and wait for Andrew to kind of co-write or write half an album or whatever it would be. Right. You know, and Andrew, in fairness, you know, as, as uncomfortable as that conversation was, took it on the chin and saw the bigger picture and said, yeah, you know, listen, if, as he says, if I can be a part of this, then then great. I, I don't want to um, in any way, though, diminish Andrew's contributions musically to the sound of Wham, though, because I feel like... I listen to Wham and I listen to George Michael's a solo artist and a lot of those genetics carry over. But Wham has this very singular, joyful club. And it feels like Andrew's production, his personality, that initial thing that brought them together very much makes their sound what it is. Oh, 100%. I think one of the other interesting things is Simon Napier-Bell, who was their manager. He wasn't interviewed for the film because he didn't interview, but we had a great archive of him talking about George and Andrew from the time when he was managing them. And he said... Contrary to what most people say, that Andrew had no part in Wham, it's totally the opposite. Wham was Andrew. And George, when he was younger, copied Andrew. It was Andrew and Andrew the real Andrew and the fake one. And it was only as the process unfolded and the, and the bands went from success to success that George got that confidence himself and with that, the confidence as a songwriter. And uh, it was a kind of supreme confidence as well because he just knew that his songs were good and each time getting better. So can we just talk very briefly about the China trip? Of course, <laughs> yeah. It, it struck me as, first of all, it was lovely. <laughs> then it was very interesting to me that they were the first Western pop band to play in communist China. But it was also kind of funny to me that they were seen as safe by communist China to play in China because they weren't overtly anything. To me, they were overtly pretty sexual. I mean, we saw the concert with the shuttlecock and, and all, the, all the stuff they were up to. But that was a pretty significant moment, right? Yeah, no, I guess the awareness from the Chinese point of view would have just been from seeing the pop videos. And the pop videos were just kind of fun, weren't they? Yeah. And so even though they were two very good looking boys, they weren't sexual the videos in any way they were heartthrobs and pinups and whatever but there was a safety factor there that probably would fit well if that's what was required in, in china so <laughs> but it's amazing when you look at that how what a different world things were back then i mean nothing highlights it more than those clips of china because it's a different different world it seems like centuries ago rather than 40 years ago so we've talked about Andrew's incredible, you know, graciousness and acceptance of George's talent. And in the film, we see 
his acceptance of George deciding to become a solo artist and deciding to end the band. Conversely, we keep hearing George talk about this huge ego he had. You know, I think my favorite example of that is when he talks about how mad he was that Last Christmas was prevented from being a number one hit by another song he sung in. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Do they know it's Christmas? But to be honest, maybe it's just his retrospective talking. He does not come across in the real-time footage in the film as being a monstrous, egotistical guy. Am I just reading it wrong? Yeah, I, I think he's egotistical. I don't think he's a monstrous, egotistical. I think it's just that he was hard on himself. So mm. he set these standards for himself. And he did, if he didn't achieve them, he felt he wasn't achieving his full potential. So that's where the ego came in. And the ego to wanting to be bigger and better and bigger and better, that was kind of paramount for him. So... Even though their record was second and they gave all the money to Ethiopian charities because he'd set that as his fourth number one that year and because it didn't achieve that, it kind of felt that it was kind of a little chink in his armor. But he's very funny about it. That's he the is. charm of George. You know, a little, he's a little petty in a way that I like. <laughs> yeah, but he's funny about it. You know, he's he, he's so honest and, yeah. and funny about it that you just think, well, fair enough. I'm sure we've all been in situations where we go, oh, you know, that's it. Oh, that's great through gritted teeth because you think, <laughs> oh, I've actually you know, missed that opportunity, whatever it is. So, yeah, I think we've probably all been there. He's probably just a bit more honest about it than we are. So Wham! ends their career with this one final epic concert. Isn't that yet another gift when you're making a project like this to have this perfect, glorious ending? A hundred percent, yeah. It wouldn't have really worked if it was like a farewell tour. It worked because it's a, it's a one-off. It's a one-shot deal. There are 25,000 people turning up to queue for tickets, let alone the 72,000 that were there on the day. Yeah, it's a fantastic way to bow out, isn't it? It really is. And you can almost hear when Andrew talks about it, you can hear in the film, his voice starts to crack a little bit. Wham. As us, as what we were together, was at an end. You know, because he he got quite emotional when we did the interviews for that. Well, the documentary is Wham. It is joyful as all heck. It is poignant. I learned so much watching it, even though I thought I knew everything about this band. Simon Halfin, thank you so much for joining me to talk about it. It was such a pleasure meeting you. Oh, thank you. It's lovely. I've really enjoyed it. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks so much again to producer Simon Halfin. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, TV, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. 